Welcome to This Means War, a podcast that looks at contemporary conflict and how wars are being fought around the world today and what this might mean for the future. I'm Peter Roberts, your host, ensconced in a subterranean warren on the south coast of the UK. With a background in wars and warfare, I wanted to dig a bit deeper into the current conflicts around the world and get a sense over how the protagonists were fighting. Now, you can pick some of this up from mainstream media, more still in specialist journals and online content, but most of this is usually limited by the word count their authors are allowed or the airtime editors will give journalists in any one segment. So on this show, we plan on delving a bit deeper into what this all means for us now and how it might shape the future of warfare. The show is sponsored by Raytheon UK and is a production for The Wavell Room. Check out their website for more in-depth military discussion at www.wavellroom.com. The most recent invasion of a sovereign country by Russian forces has garnered much interest. However, we need to watch for the perils of an attention deficit disorder in our politicians, military leaders and public regarding wars and warfare. Whilst the latter group can afford to be fickle in their news appetite, the former groups are in sore need of constant reminders that wars wreaking death and destruction in their paths cannot be simply left to prolonged ceasefires that become frozen conflicts. Nor can we afford to fail to examine conflicts and challenge conventions that just simply want to move on to the next item on the agenda. And I say the most recent Russian invasion because it has done so before, and will probably do so again. The first European continental war of the 21st century occurred in 2008 when Russian forces annexed parts of Georgia in the strategically important region of the South Caucasus. It was the first time that conventional military power had been used in concert with cyber attacks and an informational war on the international media and centres of power. It was also the salutary warning of Russians' intentions that was ignored all around the West. Deterrence failed with Moscow, Russia's clear signalling was ignored, and Georgia was the key moment. Both the Secretary-General of NATO and the British Prime Minister have admitted this in recent publications. Yet what most people remember, if anything, about this important conflict is that use of cyber and little green men, the emergence of the grey zone and hybrid warfare as buzz phrases in military and political circles across Western capitals. They don't recall the 200,000 people displaced, the villages destroyed, the ethnic cleansing of Georgians and the human rights abuses that took place. And that's according to the European Court of Human Rights. Indeed, the International Criminal Court issued arrest warrants for several Russian nationals for war crimes earlier this year. The myopic view of this conflict as being one in which Russian forces took and held ground because of cyber, informational and political warfare does a deep disservice to the Georgians and indeed to the troops and the people that defended the invasion. The actions of Russian forces, air, land and sea base used for the most part conventional military units, including the 11,000 Russian Marines who conducted one of the largest amphibious operations in recent history. The heavy machinery and armour of the Russian army was also noticeable, its effects amplified by a well-constructed electronic warfare plan that channelised the Georgians onto communications frequencies that could be monitored and disrupted at will. The ceasefire brokered by French President Nicolas Sarkozy left the Georgians with a country divided and occupied in places by a foreign power. There remains a line of control between Georgia and the occupied regions of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. 
Russian political manoeuvring continues in Tbilisi. Cyber attacks, disinformation and propaganda are facts of everyday life in Georgian towns and cities. This has been the way for the last six years. An evolution of Russian political warfare matured beyond what is seen in the Baltic states in Scandinavia or elsewhere around the world. The echoes of the Georgian Kinetic War in 2008 were clear in the Russian annexation of Crimea in Ukraine in 2014, along with its occupation of the Donbass region. With renewed military action in Ukraine in 2022, it's clear that Russia could replicate some form of greater annexation of Georgia in the future. If there was international outrage at Moscow's action, it was, in whatever way you look at it, short-lived. The international community did little and Russia did not become the pariah that it did earlier this year after its actions in Ukraine. Under the French ceasefire plan, Georgians have been forced to continue to live with a foreign state occupying part of their country and with the constant threats of wider annexations from Russia since 2008. This brings a distinctly different viewpoint from those we often hear from Western commentators about the threat from Russia. And I wanted to share with you what it feels like to experience Russian intimidation over the long term and to live under the manifest threats from Moscow's whims. There are few better ways of understanding Russian capabilities and intent than by hearing it from people who live close to the edge. So today I'm joined by Natya Suskuria, founder and executive director of the Regional Institute for Security Studies, a Tbilisi-based think tank and official partner of RUSI. Additionally, Natya holds an advisory position at Chatham House. She's a lecturer in Russian politics. And previously, she served at the Office of the National Security Council of Georgia. And before that, the Minister of Defence of Georgia. Natya, listen, welcome to the show. I want to start really by asking, I guess, the most pertinent question and immediate question for the listeners. How has Georgia reacted to the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Because it has, I'm guessing, been quite different from the way we feel in other Western capitals that are slightly further displaced from the action. Peter, first of all, thank you for having me on your new podcast. It is a real pleasure and uh, congratulations for launching an extremely timely and insightful podcast series. Even though Georgia has a long history of dealing with the Russian aggression, it is rare that Georgia makes it to the headlines. So thank you for this opportunity to dive deep into some of the key issues that are becoming particularly relevant, I think, in the context of the ongoing war in Ukraine. Russia's full-scale military offensive in Ukraine came as a surprising and shocking event for most of the people in the world. Even some of the most knowledgeable Russia experts hardly imagined that Putin could make such an irrational decision to bomb Kiev and target civilian population in peaceful cities all around Ukraine. Yet for many Georgians, these events in Ukraine revived 2008 experience. Of course, in the case of Ukraine, the scale and the intensity is much different. Yet in many ways, Putin followed the same old playbook that has been firstly tried and tested against Georgia in 2008. Prior to the declaration of the so-called special military operation, there were many signs indicating that the Kremlin was not planning to back off and rather had much more ambitious plans and far-reaching aims. I can provide our listeners with a couple of examples later on if we have time. But to go back to your question, I always say that if anyone really can understand what Ukrainian people are going through now, it is Georgians. So since we went through the similar, although much smaller scale, pass of dealing with the Russian ground, air and sea offensive uh, in 2008. So if you take a walk, for example, around the 
the capital city of Tbilisi, but also in other cities around Georgia, you would see dozens of Ukrainian flags and symbols in every single corner of the city, as well as volunteer initiatives and businesses trying to help and support the Ukrainians on the ground. The general sense of solidarity has been very high since day one, and I don't think it has diminished since then. Surveys conducted since the beginning of the war indicates that around 88% of Georgian citizens support Ukraine and only 1% want to see Russia winning in this war, while around 84% believes that Russia is an enemy and an overwhelming majority, 96% of the people think that Russian actions in Ukraine will partially or fully affect Georgia at some point in the future. Thus, there is, of course, a sense of solidarity, but also a deep sense of insecurity and fear of experiencing another military incursion. Many have feared that due to the incredibly poor performance of the Russian military in Ukraine, Moscow may look for other theaters where it can achieve some sort of swift victory. Since day one of the invasion of Ukraine, one of the largest demonstrations have been held in the capital city of Tbilisi. And thousands of people denounced the Russian aggression and demanded more support for Ukraine from the government. Georgia has sent tons of humanitarian aid and a number of volunteer fighters have joined Ukrainians on the battlefield. And Georgia has also supported Ukraine in all international formats. Yet despite this, the war in Ukraine has become also in certain ways a divisive and polarizing issue in Georgian politics, raising the tensions internally. Many citizens felt like the government's response to the ongoing war has not been vocal enough as the ruling party took a more moderate stance, more cautious stance. Firstly, Georgia did not join the sanctions against Russia, and this has angered a lot of ordinary citizens. Such a decision has been justified by the fear of escalation of the conflict and economic damage that would have been inflicted on Georgia in terms of income from Russian tourism, trade and remittances that Georgians receive from Russia. At the same time, for example, the president of Georgia, Salome Zurabishvili, who has not enjoyed much popularity before, has emerged with a different rhetoric that stressed on the common fate of Ukrainians and Georgians, calling for more support for Ukraine. Hence, she has gained quite a lot of sympathy. Many in Georgia feared that a moderate positioning on this issue could have endangered Georgia's prospects on joining the EU. The denial to grant Georgia a candidacy status for now, whilst both Moldova and Ukraine received the status, has been also viewed within the same prism, further deepening internal divisions and reinforcing Russian propaganda through local enablers on this issue, stressing that the EU does not want Georgia as a member, hence it is time to stop wasting the time on seeking what is ultimately unattainable for Georgia. At the same time, the immediate effect of war was an influx of 30,000 Russian citizens who had flown to Georgia in the first months since the imposition of the Western sanctions. Now the estimates claim that the numbers increased up to 90,000. Russians still have visa-free travel to Georgia even after the war. Georgia has never really introduced visa regime to demonstrate that the ordinary Russians do not necessarily have to struggle because of the decisions that are being made in the Kremlin. Yet, unfortunately, the war in Ukraine has shown in many ways that many Russians still support the bloodshed and war crimes that Putin's regime is committing in Ukraine. Hence, a large majority of Russians storming Georgia are not necessarily 
the opposition-minded ones or the ones who are against the war in Ukraine, but rather those who want to live comfortable lives without being targeted by the sanctions, whilst blaming the West and not their government for what's happening in Russia at the moment. So there is a strong call among Georgians demanding a policy shift from the government in terms of the introduction of the visa regime for Russian citizens to have a greater control on who can cross the Georgian border. Many fears that just like in the past, in the case of Georgia and Ukraine in 2014 and now in 2022, such an influx of Russians to the country may at some point be used by Putin as a pretext for an invasion in order to protect the Russian population from the so-called non-existent Georgian oppression, genocide or ethnic cleansing. We know that Russia can make those claims very easily without having any ground. So overall, I would say that there is a huge sense of insecurity and huge sense of threats, Russian threats that has already been there, of course, for decades. But now we see that Putin's regime is not going to stop at Ukraine. There is so much in there to unpick. It feels like that the president of the National Security Council, the government is walking a really difficult tightrope because they are, on the one hand, desperately wanting to support Ukraine with the population behind them, it, it seems, from those figures you quoted from polling. But at the same time, there is a very precarious position that Georgia finds itself in economically as well as geographically. And then potentially you have, and I'm not saying they are, you have 90,000 infiltrators who could well be a pretext for some kind of further action by Russia. It's a really difficult, complex situation to find its way through. And I know the National Security Council of Georgia has not been around for that long. Do you get the sense that it is in its second big trial, because its first one was, of course, with dealing with COVID in the country, do you think National Security Council has found the right way through? Has it had to change what it's been doing? Is it working for the country? Does it work for the president? I mean, it's a different president from the one who put it together. Have there been changes to the strategic calculus of the country and the priorities? The National Security Council of Georgia has been recently re-established under the subordination of the Prime Minister of Georgia. The older version of the National Security Council was subordinated to the president of Georgia. But since the change in constitution, the latest National Security Council that we have nowadays is subordinated to the prime minister. So it has not been around for many years, as you mentioned, Peter. And it is a constant struggle to get it right, the way it functions, how to make it efficient. So, of course, the COVID crisis has been a major challenge that has shifted the priorities completely. And this has not been just exclusive to Georgia. Obviously, many countries, the National Security Councils went through the same sort of changes. But of course, Georgia is constantly threatened by this existential challenge that is the Russian occupation. So the main aim and the main function of the National Security Council is to increase the coordination among the relevant bodies to make sure that the national security of the country is at the highest of the agenda and the priorities. The ongoing war in Ukraine, I think, is a chilling reminder that Putin sees fulfilling Russia's imperial ambition as the greatest aim that will forever remain part of his legacy and achievement. And he is ready to be in this war in the long run. He has not been able to accomplish economic or technological miracles in Russia, hence pursuing aggression, invading sovereign countries and feeding ordinary Russians with the illusions that he is 
the one to restore historical justice and protect Russian interests against uh, NATO and the West in general, is the only way towards being put down in history next to Stalin, for example. So he needs to create an existential threat in the face of NATO and the West and make the public believe that it is a life and death situation for Russia. So for Georgia, Georgia is a part of this strategy, of course, and Georgia has been targeted in the past. Georgia is still targeted nowadays, and uh, I call this the quiet war. Many people know that the war only lasted for five days in 2008, but it hasn't really been over because Georgia is constantly on a day-to-day basis targeted by Russian active measures. So that's why it is so important for Georgia to have a functional National Security Council. There is still a lot to do. There is a long way to accomplish the aims. And of course, it is very important for the council to have a key role in this. Nowadays, since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, we haven't seen a prominent role of the council in this. So my wish is that in the future, the council would take more responsibility, more prominent role when it comes to coordinating the national security issues, because I think this is very crucial for Georgia. And of course, institutional building is one of the key aims that we need to fulfill in order to have a chance to gain the candidacy status. That is also part of the EU criteria that they have put forward for Georgia to be considered again for the candidacy status and to be granted this status. And in general, I think that is very crucial for Georgia's democratic future. So I think the NSC in this has a crucial role, given how serious our challenges and threats are on a day-to-day basis. Again, a brilliant answer. I want to come back to the EU and to NATO membership a little bit later. But I did want to touch on something you brought up there about the enduring nature of the threat and the length of war. I think publics, as well as politicians and military leaders in the West, all expect warfare to be over very quickly, certainly the kinetic phase, and in Georgia's case it was, right, five days. But the war you experience, the ongoing conflict that takes place that is not about necessarily tanks and fighter jets, runs for much longer. But I think a lot of the West has been slightly confused by the fact that Russia would go on fighting now six months into the war with Ukraine with losing tanks and armour and using artillery at a huge rate and going through people and accepting casualties. This idea that war would prolong in this fashion for so long is somewhat of an anathema to many people. You know, the public's getting bored of the same scenes of tanks blowing up and helicopters being shot down and wounded being taken away. It is a very strange feeling in Europe to have these conversations with people who seem sort of aghast that Russia would continue fighting in the long term. Do you have a view on that? Yes, indeed. I think that it came as a surprise to many Russia analysts and experts that Russia was able to launch this completely irrational military offensive against Ukraine and to stay in this war in a long run. I'm not expecting the war to be over anytime soon. And I think if we compare Georgian experience, for example, to Ukraine and Putin's aims, I think it is very clear that in Ukraine, Putin has much more far-reaching, much more ambitious plans. And even his uh, rhetoric indicates that he sees Ukraine as part of his greater 
goal of restoring the so-called Russian Empire. So I think in many ways he has put himself into the corner because now he needs to deliver. He needs a certain victory to justify the loss of military hardware, human loss as well. So with this regard, I think what we are seeing now is quite unexpected, quite unprecedented. But it means that if Russia is not stopped in Ukraine, Putin's ambitions will not stop there. So I'm expecting that Moldova, Georgia, other, maybe even Baltic states will be targeted by Russia in many different ways. It doesn't have to be the direct military threat, but we see how skillfully Russia can use the hybrid warfare tools. That could be disinformation, cyber attacks, so on and so forth. So in many ways, Georgian example shows that in August 2022, this year, will mark 14th anniversary of the war. But yet we see that 14 years on, Russian disinformation against Georgia is becoming more sophisticated. They are trying and testing different strategies. They are trying to infiltrate every single domain of the political realm in Georgia. So Russia does not necessarily has to use tanks. They have other tools to destabilize the countries, especially smaller countries such as Georgia with very limited resources. Obviously, Ukrainian experience is quite different and quite unique in that sense. And it also shows that there was a complete failure of intelligence, for example, indicating that Putin really expected to have this sort of blitzkrieg victory in Ukraine that obviously did not happen. And it also highlights the importance of societal resilience for for example, that we need to take into consideration because this is highly relevant for smaller countries with limited resources as well. Because in this case, I think we need to use every single resource that we have that could be human capital as well, to somehow make sure that Georgia builds human resistance, builds resilience against the ongoing Russian threat. Because I'm not expecting that Putin even if the attention will be heavily shifted on Ukraine within the next couple of months, next couple of years, even maybe. I'm not expecting that Georgia will remain outside of the Russian interest. And I'm sure that, and there are already some signs that Russia will try different and more aggressive strategies and tactics in Georgia. So that's why it is so important to make sure that we fulfill our commitments and we strengthen the relationship and the cooperation and partnerships that we have had for many years with our partners in NATO, in the EU, and of course, bilateral relationships with strategic partners such as the US, UK and Baltic states, for example. It always struck me by talking with you, the team in Georgia, going to Kiev, talking to the Baltic states, that the West is really poor when it just tars everything with this hybrid brush as a sort of a one size fits all. In fact, the Russian approaches in each of those countries is very contextual. I mean, they went hard on the weaponization of corruption in Ukraine for a few found it didn't work, tried it elsewhere. They play tunes on the levers and the tools they've got available to them to bring about a long term change to what they want to see. And that resilience seems to be 
the most difficult thing that they've got to unpick. It's different being there from doing it in London. I remember Elizabeth Broad joining Rusi and starting this resilience program to talk about sort of modern deterrence and the societal reaction. She was laughed out of meetings. Government people wouldn't take her seriously when she was calling out the threat from Russia that was coming out. And now you have people coming around to this view. But you in Georgia have been familiar with this requirement to keep the population aware and trained and up to date with the threats, not just the military ones, but also the cyber ones, the political ones, the disinformation ones. But disinformation has been a significant part of Russia's campaign, specifically in Georgia. Has it changed in light of the war? And what are the main messages now? Yes, indeed, Peter, you are absolutely correct. This information has been one of the key tools Russia has been applying to the Georgian situation, sometimes successfully, sometimes with less of a success. But it is a threat. It is a national security threat, I would say, because Russia has been very proactive in pushing its narrative and its rhetoric in Georgia. And even though the sort of groups that are promoting this sort of Russian pro-Kremlin narrative are nowadays marginal. I think Russia is committed to this in the long run. So this is what is the most scaring part of this, because they have a long-term plan to destabilize the country. Of course, the war in Ukraine has caused a bit of a shift when it comes to disinformation. And we have seen a number of groups, pro-Russian groups, radical. These are, in most cases, radical nationalist groups that are advocating for Georgia's neutrality, for example. And I see a significant shift in this because back in the days, neutrality has always been part of the rhetoric of the pro-Russian nationalist groups. But back in the days, it wasn't really taken seriously. But when, for example, President Zelensky, I think it was earlier on in March, mentioned that he might consider some sort of neutrality, given that Ukraine is provided with uh, certain security guarantees. Back then, these sort of pro-Russian groups have really uh, used this claim by the Ukrainian president to maximize their aims on the ground, claiming that even Ukraine is ready to consider neutrality. So it is better to become neutral now than to face the existential threat of demolishing the entire country through the military means, through the Russian aggression. And it is better to think about this now and to seek for the better solution that could be neutrality in a way that Georgia will remain neutral as a country and it will formally reject its aspirations to join NATO, for example. Although this is a complete false statement because we know that given geography, for example, Georgia in many ways is a hostage of its geographic location. It is absolutely unfeasible how Georgia can remain really neutral. Neutrality for me means becoming pro-Russian, going back into the Russian orbit. So in a way, they embellish this uh, term of neutrality to somehow mislead the society and make them believe that this could be the answer to the peaceful resolution of the conflict, which in reality means a complete different future and the outcome for Georgia. So this is one way in which these pro-Russian groups have been maximizing their gains and using this sort of narrative to change and shift the public opinion in Georgia. Another prominent narrative is the fear of war and the Western share in what's happening in Ukraine. So this is very prominently featured in Russian 
official statements in the statements of the foreign ministry, for example, that the West is the one to be blamed in what's happened in Ukraine. So in many ways, because of the fact that Georgian population, a majority of it supports integration into NATO and into the EU, the pro-Russian groups are trying to create an enemy out of the West, to create this sort of malign actor who wants to use countries like Georgia and Ukraine against Russia and in return to offer nothing to these countries. And in many ways, the decision of the EU to hold granting of the candidacy status to Georgia was used to strengthen this narrative. Obviously, the reality is completely different. However, in many ways, these groups really know their target audience. They target the vulnerable groups of the society who might be more prone to the Russian disinformation. So just to give you an example, for instance, instance, the Western soft power is very strong when it comes to the younger generations, because nowadays everybody seeks to gain their education, their degrees in the West. Nobody wants to go to Russia anymore. So when it comes to the younger generations, they know that it is very hard to somehow convince them in this sort of narrative and to make them believe that Russia is the way out of this situation. So in this case, they target the other segments of the population who are more older generation, more people who live in more rural areas, for example, to somehow strengthen their narrative. But at some point, of course, they know that without winning the hearts and minds of the younger generation, it is impossible to fulfill the aim and to shift the general public opinion. In many ways, they have also shifted their strategies because now we see younger people voicing the sort of Kremlin narratives. In many cases, they speak English, for example. Some of them have a Western education, but they still voice the pro-Russian narrative. So in many ways, they try to mislead the society and try to show them that they are pro-Georgian, not pro-Russian. But in reality, they are just voicing the narratives that the Kremlin wants them to voice. Really interested in this point about young people voicing those narratives. Do you think they're doing it deliberately because they've been subverted by Russia? Or do you think it's just part of youthful exuberance experimenting with different ideologies? Lots of countries play with very vibrant but small communist parties that are made up of sort of university students who are experimenting with these ideas and these philosophies over you know what looks right for the future. Do you think that's the case with these young people or do you think that it's something more deliberate? I think that it's more deliberate because, in my opinion, the same thing is happening in Ukraine. But in Georgia, it happened after the war, after 2008. Russian soft power has been almost non-existent since then because the aggression was so overt that people have really seen what aims Russia had before. Or if some of the people were not convinced about Putin's intentions, the war has really shown the aggression, the violence, the audacity of Vladimir Putin's regime to commit war crimes and then blame the Georgian side for ethnic cleansing of its own population. And in many ways, Georgia is a small country, so 
many people have relatives, they know people who have been directly targeted and who have struggled from the Russian occupation and who still carry on struggling from it since Russia is pushing on a day-to-day basis the so-called administrative borderline further into the Georgian territories to grab war land from Georgia. So in many ways, the war has shown what Russia is capable of. So I think these groups are deliberately there. They have the specific goal. They have the specific aims that they have to fulfill and a very clear agenda. And I don't think that they are rushing anywhere. They know that they are a appeal is not strong nowadays, but they will try to use all the vulnerabilities. For example, if in the end, and that is my worst fear, if in the end Georgia will not get candidacy status, they will try to portray this as a betrayal of the EU, as a decision indicating that EU will never accept Georgia as a member, will never consider Georgia ever again, and it is just a waste of time to pursue the pro-European foreign policy agenda. So, So I think they are waiting for their momentum. And even though they are not as popular as they might want to be nowadays, it doesn't mean that they are not representing a threat in the long run. I wanted to return, I said I would right at the start, that I wanted to return to this EU and NATO membership, which I think is exceptionally important. It is something that Finland and Sweden mentioned one week and were in the next signing papers, whereas Ukraine... Georgia and others have been dragged through the mires to try and get to a level and then held back. It strikes me that you have a set of bodies who are scared of Russia and seek to use the membership of those states into the EU as some kind of sop to appease Russia. It's a bit like ignoring the lessons from 2008, right? I mean, it only can lead you into a bad place. But somehow you can't seem to stop those in Europe from taking this view that actually, unless we deny Russia, Ukraine and others entry to the EU and NATO, unless we do that, then we're bound to start a larger war with Russia. It is a remarkably different set of calculations, I guess, than you see in Tbilisi. I think it is wrong to believe that denying countries like Ukraine and Georgia NATO membership and EU membership would make European soil more secure. Because these countries have fought for many years to achieve the NATO membership, to achieve the EU membership. And in many ways, in 2008, the decision of the Bucharest summit has emboldened Russia to go ahead with its military aggression against Georgia and then a couple of years later against Ukraine and now we see that Russian aggression has a much larger scale. So taking these lessons in mind, I think it is very crucial for European allies, for NATO allies to reconsider their policies, how they want to engage with these countries, because we have seen that what is happening in Ukraine is not staying in Ukraine. It has caused a lot of problems to the NATO members, to the EU members, and they are facing the consequences on a daily basis, and they will carry on facing these consequences for many years to come. So it would have been in many ways much safer option if they had granted Ukraine and Georgia these memberships uh, in the past. I don't think that we would have necessarily faced what we are facing today, because we have seen that when it comes to, for example, Finland and Sweden joining NATO, Putin has shifted his rhetoric and he has much softened his rhetoric because there is not really much to do when it comes to facing NATO, whereas 
facing with individual nations that are not under any security umbrella, that's when Russia is feeling most emboldened. So my fear is that if uh, this process of integration is stalled in the nearest future, we will see more provocative actions from Russia. Of course, it depends how the war in Ukraine will end. This will in many ways determine what sort of Russia we will be facing in the future and how emboldened Putin will remain when it comes to seeking its foreign policy agenda and goals. But I think it is crucial to reconsider the policies in terms of greater integration of Ukraine and Georgia, the countries that have been facing Russian aggression for decades now into uh, NATO and the EU. Natya, we've run out of time. In fact, we've gone over, but it was such a brilliant conversation. I didn't get to ask you half the questions that I wanted to get to, but it was utterly fascinating. Thanks for coming on the show and giving us all a better understanding of the security situation in Georgia. I hope the audience will ponder your remarks and think about the longer term implications of Russian actions and the impact of a failure to examine the ambitions of foreign powers by their broader actions and signaling. We can't afford to ignore these warning signs. You can follow Natya on Twitter at nsuskuria and read some of her previous work, including a rather brilliant piece she wrote about a potential Russian invasion of Ukraine that was published just two days before their units crossed the line back in February 2022. That rather prescient piece can be found in Foreign Policy magazine. I hope you enjoyed our show. Do subscribe, leave a rating and a review on any of your podcast streaming channels. These really help us to shape the content, our approach and reach new audiences. Please also send us your suggestions about topics or conflicts or people you'd like to see us cover or interview. We've got a packed schedule, but we'll certainly respond to your demands. Email me at thismeanswar at wavelroom.com. The show is produced by Kieran Yates and Joe Bundo and is sponsored by Raytheon UK. It's a production for The Wavel Room, the home of intellectual curiosity and challenging thinking for British military professionals. Thanks for listening. <laughs>